Recovery Elevator, episode 347. I read a stat that really like blew my mind and kind of helped me understand why I failed at it multiple times and why maybe some other folks might struggle with it. It's like 75% of people will fail trying to quit alcohol cold turkey if they don't have some form of a resource. Welcome to the Recovery All Leader Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill, and thank you so much for joining us today. On today's podcast, we have Frank. He's 42 years old. He's from Omaha and took his last drink on May 2nd, 2021. Hell yeah, nice job for Frank. Listeners, Recovery Elevator is going to be in Denver, Colorado at the Denver Hilton Garden Inn Union Station, March 31st to April 2nd, 2022. This conference-style event is all about connection and building that alcohol-free community. Sure, you're going to have to step outside your comfort zone, but let me assure you, this is going to be worth it, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Capacity for this event is 300, but you'll often find yourself in small breakout group discussions. We'll be exploring meditation at this event with all music performed live on stage. We'll be collectively moving energy with breath work, and you can get your day started with either yoga, meditation, or a fitness class. This event is open to spouses or significant others, and they also have their own breakout sessions. Registration goes live this Friday, October 15th. For more information, go to the event page, and the link is in the show notes. Thank you, Hillary. Okay, let's get started. A friend of mine asked me if it was possible to heal in the same environment that you became sick in. Now, what prompted this was, as many of you have heard in the intro or the outro music, I say that you can't heal in the same environment you became sick in. So let's listen to this audio clip real quick. You can't heal in the same environment you became sick. Sound familiar? I love our intro and outro music. Thank you, DJ NYE, for your help with this. So I do agree with this statement, but it has many layers to it, and let's unpack it a bit. For many, in fact, I'd say the majority of listeners... It isn't practical or possible for us to change jobs, alter our living situation, or with whom we are living with, or move to the Mediterranean coast. So is it possible to heal and quit drinking in this same environment? The answer is yes, this is possible, and today I'll cover how. But first, let's unpack this a little bit more. Part of this statement has to do with epigenetics, which was brought to mainstream science by Dr. Bruce Lipton in the 90s. And this says that it's the environment that causes many of our Western illnesses, such as inflammations, autoimmune disorders, diseases, cancers, mental health issues, addictions, and not your DNA or genetics. Again, it's the environment that causes these issues and not your DNA or genetics. This is analogous to what addiction guru Dr. Gabra Mate says that alcoholism isn't an inherited trait or gene but a learned adaptive behavior that expresses itself in tumultuous, stressful, or traumatic environments. So this should be received as good news. It means you're not doomed to a lifetime of pain and suffering because you were born with the addiction gene, which scientists have yet to discover. So yes, you can heal in the same environment you became sick in. Now this is different from the statement, you can't use the same consciousness or thinking to depart from an addiction that got you into this mess in the first place. I feel that line always holds water. So please make the difference or the distinction between the two. Okay, so yes, you can heal in the same environment. But of course, changes have to be made. Many changes. In fact, you may have heard the line that says, when you quit drinking, you don't have to change much. Great, you just have to change everything. Oh shit. So I do agree with this line also. However, the changes don't have to all happen at once, and many of these changes occur on their own, without you doing anything except quitting drinking. So here are the three things you need to heal in the same environment you became sick. Awareness, boundaries, and don't leave the body. Listeners, I call this awareness, boundaries, and don't leave the body. I really tried to come up with a catchy acronym, but it just didn't happen. Okay, let's chat awareness. I once heard you could take the 50 most potent medicines from the East, the 50 most potent medicines from the West, you combine them, and you still don't have the power of awareness or consciousness or presence. Those three words are interchangeable. So what the hell does this mean? 
It means being a conscious participant in your life regards to your drinking and those around you. It means being aware that you are being triggered by a family member or the unconsciousness of somebody else in your household. This means observing the emotions and sensations in your body before taking that first drink. This creates a space or distance from the drink that begins to shift the bundle of thoughts and emotions called your addiction. Quantum science backs this up. It's called the observer effect. When we bring awareness internally without judgment, science shows that the molecules and atoms in our body begin to change at the cellular level. An example of this is when we experience anxiety in the solar plexus area. When we go into that place with our attention, our awareness, it begins to soften and shift. A good practice is to have one eye on the outside and one eye on the inside when you're triggered. The second thing you need is boundaries. For example, telling your spouse, no alcohol in the house, or from now on, I'm not okay with you speaking to me like that, or if possible, maybe someone needs to be asked to leave the premise. Boundaries are important for many reasons, but the two big ones are, number one, you're creating a healthier environment, and number two, you're deviating from years of unhealthy behaviors and actions, and this is a major act of self-care and self-love. The third thing I mention is to not leave the body. This is also called disassociation. Many of us as kiddos learn to depart from the body as a child because the pain was too much, and this behavior continues into adulthood. What I mean is when we think the world is coming to an end, we start mentally searching outside of ourselves for an answer. There is a time and place for this, but I want you to start telling yourself that you're not going anywhere. And this is how it can sound. Michelle, we are 55 years old. We are no longer seven. We are no longer a helpless child. I can and will face this emotional storm. And again, take your mental energies towards the discomfort. Just like episode 341, head into the storm. The only way to it is through it. Something to keep in mind is don't forget you are getting stronger with these life challenges. It may have been the 19th century German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche who coined the term, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. This holds true, always, unless it's polio. So there was a recent study done with fruit flies, and the fruit flies that were exposed to stresses in their environments live longer than fruit flies who didn't experience significant life stressors. This is also how we build muscles in the gym. We stress certain tissues and then they rebuild stronger. So keep reminding yourself you are gaining strength during these life challenges. Through this adversity, you are growing stronger. You are healing. And as you heal, others around you heal as well. So that last sentence is important. And let me say this again. As you heal, those closest to you will also heal. As you heal in the same environment you became sick, with awareness, boundaries, and not leaving your body. And again, I call this awareness, boundaries, and not leaving your body. Gosh, I need to come up with an acronym for that. So as you heal, you become the healer, almost the shaman in your family. And dense generationally inherited energies, behaviors, and thought patterns in your familiar systems begin to soften and dissipate. In Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point, he asks readers a question. What is more important, a child growing up in a loving household with both parents, but then goes to a broken school system with drug dealers on each corner, or a child who grows up in a broken home, oftentimes with a single parent, but then goes to a nurturing scholastic setting with healthy after-school community programs? I picked wrong on this one. It turns out it's the healthy community which is the most important. What I'm getting at is, even if you find yourself in a ruptured and fractured household, you can still begin to create a healthy life outside of this environment. And it turns out, this external healthy community is what's most important anyways. So listeners, you may need to listen to this intro a couple of times because this one isn't quite as straightforward as some of the other intros, and it can be a bit complicated. And maybe role play a bit, especially with bringing awareness to your external and internal environment. I recommend role-playing and begin practicing setting boundaries. Maybe do this in front of a mirror. In addition, practice placing your focus and attention in different areas of your body before the emotional shitstorm arrives. I hope you all enjoyed today's intro. I want to thank my friend Aaron for asking the question. 
And before we hear from Odette and Frank, let's hear from Exact Nature. Exact Nature loves partnering with Recovery Elevator because we are committed to the same goal, to help other individuals quit drinking and stay on this sober path. Exact Nature provides all-safe, all-natural, THC-free, proprietary formula CBD products. If you want to check them out, head over to exactnature.com. As a Recovery Elevator listener, use a promo code RE20 to receive a 20% discount on your order at checkout. That's RE20 at checkout. Thank you, Paul, for such a great introduction. And Recovery Elevator, please help me welcome Frank to the show. Frank, how are you today? I'm great, Odette. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm really happy we're chatting. I feel like this has been on the books for a few weeks, so I'm happy the day is here. Same here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And let's get right to it, Frank. When was the last time you had a drink? The last time I had a drink was May 22nd of this year. So by my tracking, that's 109 days ago today. Congrats, Frank. Thank you. Can you give listeners a little background on yourself before we talk about the booze? Can you let us know where you're from? What do you do for a living? Do you have a family? And what do you like to do for fun? Sure. So I'm 42 years old. I'm in Omaha, Nebraska. I've been married for about 14 years now. And we have two beautiful children. My daughter is nine and my son is five. I'm in the medical staffing field. So it's kind of a stressful uh, field to be in these times right now. And then for fun, I've always been a foodie. So I, I cook a lot. Um, I enjoy sports and I've played guitar my whole life. So I'm in a, in a band with some friends of mine. And that's kind of my release now. What's the favorite thing that you make in the kitchen, Frank? Uh, I've really gotten into smoking. So I love to smoke briskets and ribs and pork. So that's probably at the top of my list right now. Yum. I'm also a foodie and I love cooking. And I also have a five-year-old boy who the biggest frustration for me is I make all this delicious food and then he doesn't want it. So I'm like, no. (laughs) (laughs) I have the opposite. My five-year-old actually, uh, he enjoys all of the things that a a typical five-year-old wouldn't. It's my daughter, the older of the two, who seems to be very particular about what she eats. So I'm enjoying that as long as that will last. But yeah, they they eat up pretty much anything we put in front of them. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Par- parenting is a total different journey in and outside of sobriety. So I'm happy that that we do have that in common. And let us know, Frank, what your relationship and your history with alcohol has been in the past. When did you start drinking? When did you start trying to quit drinking? And what got you to your last drink? Sure. You know, I... I think I can't remember the exact age when I had my first drink or when I actually started, you know, drinking regularly, but I would say it was probably, you know, my first drink was probably around 14 or 15. And then, you know, consistently it was probably somewhere towards the junior or senior year of high school. Uh, I've heard a lot of folks on this podcast and a lot of people that you and I have both talked to probably all say the same thing. It's kind of a rite of passage for that time of your life where you're, you know, becoming an adult and you go to college and you do all the parties and such. So I was pretty much on the same timeline of, of all of that. And I, I had a gift, but I don't really necessarily think it was a gift, but that was the kind of run the running joke with my brother and I, Uh, my brother who is three years younger than me, you know, we have this gift where we never really had an off switch or we never really got, you know, sick. We were like the last ones always standing at a party or we could out drink anyone else. And so, you know, I I went through the same kind of progression that a lot of folks listening to this or, you know, have been on the show probably went through. And, you know, as I got older, it seemed like my tolerance just got higher and higher. And then toward my mid thirties, I started kind of slowing down a little bit. I noticed the, you know, the hangovers were getting worse and they were getting harder to recover from. And you're not as healthy as you were in your twenties and your metabolism starts to slow down. So now you're putting on some extra pounds maybe. And, you know, you're eating the shame meals after a bender or a weekend of drinking. And then one day you wake up and you're in your forties and you have two day hangovers and uh, it's, it's not fun. So I, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's kind of how I got Did you notice that your progression was also being matched with outside things in your life being negatively affected? Like, was it affecting your work, your relationships? How was that 
shown on the outside. Yes, absolutely. So I, I was never a violent drunk. Um, and my father was the same way. My dad's been sober for 35 years and I only have like a few memories of him being drunk and it was, you know, him having a good time with his friends that he had over at the house and he was never abusive to us or my mom. So I was the same way, but the recovery and the hangover part was the hardest part for me because I was just a raging a-hole to everyone. And whether I knew it or not, and sometimes I knew, but I, I just couldn't control it because I felt so crappy, you know, and it's hard to, to do the things that you need to do to be an adult, to go to work, to, you know, to, to be a husband, to be a father, um, to, to go in the grocery store and not, <laughs> you know, not get in a fight with somebody who actually bumps into you or, or, you know, takes your parking spot or, and, you know, just using those for examples. But I mean, it's tough because it seems like every little thing is trying to push you or trigger you throughout the day when really nobody even knows that you're standing next to them or that you were waiting for that parking spot. Yeah, you know, I was listening to a podcast um, on addiction and the woman who was explaining just some theories on addiction was talking about it with a term that I hadn't thought about it this way or heard before. She said, you know, when when we're hang out, when we're hungover, it's like we have these gremlins on our back and it's our body and our system trying to restore that balance of like the dopamine and going back to homeostasis, what what is normal within us. And until that's not restored and back to normal, those gremlins are on us. And like, it affects how we move around the world. I mean, it sounds to me like you didn't use this word, but you are just reactive, right? Reactive to anything and anyone. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, there, along with that thought, there's, um, there's the hair of the dog, you know, theory or joke where you got to wake up. And if you're feeling that bad, maybe you have to have, you know, a morning beer or a bloody Mary or whatnot. But sometimes I was so hungover, I was physically sick and like the smell of alcohol or beer would make it worse. And I couldn't do that. So now I'm between a rock and a hard place because I can't eat. I can barely get water down and any alcohol is going to make me even more sick and feel worse. So here I am for the next, you know, day and a half, two days. <laughs> Wasn't fun. Did anybody know what you were going through? Were you talking this out with anyone? Yeah. I mean, my wife knows everything. I can't hide anything from her. And I, I talk to a family counselor once a month because as you know, life is easy and raising children is easy, you know? So, <laughs> but I, outside of that, I, that's one of the things which was probably my downfall is I'm very good or I was very good at um, covering that up because I'd done it for so long in my twenties and thirties, it was nothing to, you know, go to work on two or three hours of drunk sleep and then, you know, work a 10 or 12 hour shift in a kitchen or whatever I was doing at the time. And then, you know, party all night and rinse, wash, rinse, repeat, and do it all again. So uh, it, I guess it kind of became the norm for me, but you know, it did start getting really bad later in life. And I, I was really good at, at covering it up. Did you go through attempts before the date that you gave us at the beginning of the interview before this May, did you go through rules or trying to quit for a certain amount of time? Any efforts leading up to this last streak? Yes, uh, multiple times. And I'm actually glad you brought that up because that's one of the points that I wanted to discuss with you. There were times for me that I would be so sick or so hungover that I would promise myself that I was never going to drink like that again or I, I needed to quit for a while, at least, if not forever. And, you know, we all make those promises when we're hugging the toilet or you wake up on a bathroom floor, <laughs> yeah. but then, you know, a few days go by or a few weeks go by. And then it seems like you're right back to it because uh, for me, it was like situational drinking. I was never like waking up saying like, Oh, I need a drink today to survive. I was never physically ill from drinking. I, it was more of a, a situational social thing for me, but yeah. So I had, I had stopped once for 30 days and I did it. It was challenging because there are a lot of situations that, you know, alcohol is a huge part of our society right now. You know, it's, it's everywhere in advertising. They have all these new types of drinks and mixers and seltzers and all the things. And, you know, they're, they're appealing to all demographics and markets and it's, it's tough. So I got through my 30 days. That was probably two years ago. And after my 30 days, my reward was to have a drink because mm -hmm. I proved myself that I could do it. 
And, you know, I, I went right back into it, probably went into it probably harder because I was, I missed it so much. It was almost like doing a, a crash diet, you know, which you fast or you do a certain diet for 30 days. And then you're like, I made it. And you celebrate with a cheat meal and you're like, well, okay, that was fine. And then you might have a few more cheat meals over the next week. And before you know it, you're right back to where you were. So that's kind of how it went for me. Yeah. You know, we talk about how one of the other myths in terms of these detoxes or cleanses of not drinking for a certain amount of time is that our tolerance will be less when we go back to drinking like oh I'm just going to be such a lightweight because I haven't had a drink in so long and that is a total false myth that has been debunked mm-hmm. by many many people that have come on yep. the show including myself you know you do go back to where you were and I heard something interesting recently I heard that you will probably overdo it and drink more than your tolerance you will do a step up from where you were because of that restriction and your body just wants to overcompensate and you get too excited. Like maybe you eat too much going back to the food parallel that you're drawing, you know, you eat more than you need. We drink more when we've abstained and then reward ourselves that way. So thank you for sharing that. You know, I feel like these periods of time where people try to stop drinking whole 30, 30 days, sober January, whatever you want to call it, they're all a part of the journey, you know, and it is important that we mention kind of what happens in between these because they exist for many people. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, you know, besides the little attempts mentally here and there, and I, I would always try to do the, you know, sober November or, you know, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day thing, but those, I mean, I'm not even past like two or three days out of either of those. So the longest I ever went, for 30 days was 30 days. And that was probably since my, you know, late teens, early twenties. So you're looking at 20 years of steady drinking. Did you go into this time with a different mentality or what do you think has been a factor in you adding 109 days so far? Well, there's a pretty big factor, uh, which made my decision. My wife and I were out to dinner celebrating our anniversary um, in May and our anniversary that week had fallen on a Wednesday. So we planned to have our children stay with my sister and we were going to have a nice kid-free, um, date night. We made reservations. We made all the plans that Friday night. I ended up meeting some friends at a cigar bar and, uh, we didn't do anything crazy, but again, I, I tied one on pretty good. And then I went back to my friend's house. We had after hours, like you would do stayed there because I was too drunk to drive and my wife knew I was going to stay there anyways. So I took my kids to the my sister's house the next morning and she was out doing yard work. So I had a few beers and a margarita with her. No big deal. And came home and had some time to kill between that time and, and our reservations. So I was like, I'll just take a power nap because I'm kind of tired because I got crappy drunk sleep the night before. Well, I ended up sleeping for four hours and my wife nudged me at six o'clock and said, hey, our reservation's coming up. You need to get up and get ready. And I was kind of shocked because I've never taken a nap that long. So I got ready and um, I was feeling fine. Nothing going on. We got to dinner. The place was full at capacity. We got our table. And the minute I sat down and they brought our water and my glass of wine over. And the minute I picked up my wine, I lost control of my body. I was shaking. I had the sweats. I felt like I was going to faint. I felt like I was going to puke. And this had only happened one time before, and it was after a St. Patrick's Day bender last year, right before everything kind of got closed down for COVID. And my wife actually had to come pick me up from work because uh, I had to run into the back. I was having a panic attack, and I was in the back uh, weeping mm-hmm. and uh, had had to call. I had to text one of my friends who I confide in at work and have that person come back there and kind of calm me down and then texted my wife to come pick me up. So besides that first time, this is the only time it happened. And I I know it's because of the alcohol, whether I was dehydrated or mentally it had screwed with my brain. I don't know. But so here I am trying to keep it together, not to barf all over the table or faint and hit my head and, you know, bleed everywhere. And they're going to call the paramedics and it's going to be a scene. And my wife goes, are you all right? And I go, no, I'm really not. Like, I think we need to go. And she didn't know what a bad way I was in. So she got upset with me because she thought I was just being, you know, hung over and cranky. Mm-hmm. So she's trying to hold back tears. Now her makeup's running. Our food has arrived. Um, I've been sitting there for 10 minutes, 
holding the table so I don't fall over, breathing, sweating. The server comes back over, sees me, I'm white as a ghost. She's crying. We haven't touched our food. And the server's like, so how is everything? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, we need, a, we need our check in a couple boxes, please. And so it was at that moment where I said, okay, this is pretty serious. Like this is twice in a, in a year it's happened to me. I know why it happened. And I've said this before, but I, I think we need to really look at alcohol and figure out if it's serving my purpose or, or if it's, if there's any benefit to me uh, drinking anymore. So I wrote a four page letter to my wife. I poured it all out, talked to my counselor about it. And I found recovery elevator because I golfed on a Wednesday night league. And there's about a 45 minute drive from my home to the golf course. So I had a lot of time to kill and you probably know this, but golfing and drinking kind of go hand in hand. So that was really hard for me the first couple of weeks but I found Recovery Elevator and it's been one of the greatest resources for me to listen to everyone else's stories and, and how they overcame it or, or what they've gone through. I think I answered your question, how I made the decision or why I made the decision this time to stop drinking. Yes, you totally did. I mean, it <laughs> okay. sounds like you had a rock bottom moment that night where you were able to have that clarity, even in that physical distress that you were in and, and really get honest with yourself, you know? So, I mean, I, I heard you even laugh at the waiter coming up and now you can, you can smile at that moment. I mean, there's nothing more awkward than awkward restaurant conversations. <laughs> We've had enough of like yeah. fighting at the table or kids being crazy. Like that had to definitely be <laughs> one of those, like, Oh no, we're in a public place. Yeah. It was all the things. I mean, like I was ashamed. I was laughing. I was sad. I mean, yeah, it was, it was definitely awkward for sure. <laughs> and that was May 22nd. 22nd. That yeah. That was a Saturday night. Cause we were celebrating our anniversary. So that was the last time I took a drink. I tried to take a sip of my wine thinking that that might, you know, the hair of the dog trick or whatever, but my body wasn't having it. In terms of afterwards, I mean, I know withdrawal is serious. You know, it's something that we often talk about in our community as well. Sometimes it needs to be medically supervised. How was the day after this? You know, it is hard on the body and you could be at risk if you had been drinking copious amounts. So how was the first week, the first two weeks of sobriety on you? Well, you're right. Uh, luckily, I was not a, a person who needed alcohol to, to be well or to get through the day. I never really had withdrawals. I mean, I did have withdrawals, but not in the sense that I was medically endangering myself. The, the thought was always there, but I never had physical withdrawals. But I could tell that I was an asshole because <laughs> my best friends and my wife told me. <laughs> Yeah, those those first days are rough. We just have to get through them, right? Especially if we've been drinking a lot and our body's used to it, our mind is used to it, our brain. It's it's a it's a challenge in itself to just gain some momentum. It feels like we have to push this huge rock. Um, what was helping mm -hmm. you in those moments? I mean, you were being reactive and not patient and grumpy, like you said, but what was actually getting you from day to day? Again, I'll go back to this podcast. I, I found it and I listened to, you know, quite a few episodes because, you know, at the time there were, I think you guys were in the three twenties when I started listening to it for 320 episodes. So I had a lot of time to, to go back and hear some stories and I would play the tape forward. You know, I would play out different scenarios in my head. You know, I'm a man of faith. So I would, you know, I'd pray on it a little bit. I, you know, I call my brother who's three years sober. It took him you know, multiple attempts to get sober and he almost died once. So he's a great resource to reach out to and, you know, talk to my dad a little bit. So I never really saw myself as somebody that wanted to go to like a meeting and go to a strange place and talk to strangers and shame myself for being an alcoholic, but I knew I needed something. And I, I read a stat that really like blew my mind and kind of helped me understand why I failed at it multiple times and why maybe some other folks might struggle with it. It's like 75% of people will fail trying to quit alcohol cold turkey if they don't have some form of a resource, whether that's, you know, treatment or outpatient or meetings or a sponsor. And so just to wake up hungover and say, I'm not going to drink anymore. That doesn't work. 
because I'd get to the end of the week and be like, Hey, I made it a week or, Oh, oh football's on better get drunk. Or, you know, it's there. It just doesn't work like that. You got to have some support systems. So with this podcast and my other support systems that I have around me, that's how I was able to, to get through. Yeah. You know, we can do it alone, but I think community is so crucial and such a part of success. I feel like a lot of people who do get in that mindset and I was one of them of like, I don't need to share. I don't need to talk to anybody about it. You know, we can convince ourselves of anything if we're in our own brain. And, and that got me back to drinking, you know, cause I made up a story where I could make it okay to go back. So I just feel like it's healthy to have people challenging us and people holding space for us. And, and that stat is, is crazy. I mean, I just heard another one that made me kind of like, oh my gosh, it was one that said that right now in America, 50% of deaths of people who are under 50 are due to addiction. And I was like, wow, that's a huge number. You know, something that I keep saying is we are not recovering fast enough. People are not staying sober because you can get yeah. sober you can do a 30 days you could do 60 days but people aren't staying sober and a lot of the times these people that die are people that have a lot of time of not drinking then they go out to drinking and back to what we were talking at the beginning they drink so much their body can't take it anymore and that's when the tragedies happen because if you're just mm -hmm. a daily drinker and it's a habit it's just this like slow progression and then there's alcohol, like overdosing, because you just do too much of it, which is interesting to me by reading these stories and these stats, how it happens. It tends to happen who, to people that have stacked some sober time and then decide to go back out. So mm -hmm. it is so important to build that community. You know, I often joke about how I would have such a hard time if I went back to drinking because now I have really close friendships due to this decision and I would have to like lie. I would have to live a double life. I would have to keep secrets. I would have to just basically become a person that I don't want to become. So I've kind of like cornered myself into this accountability room where now I'm like, oh man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, it, it gets pretty real. I've done a lot of staring in the mirror when I get out of the shower or, you know, if I'm in a, a, a public restroom where, you know, I, I've been out to, I've, I've pretty much checked everything off the box now. Um, that would have warranted, you know, a drinking, uh, you know, concerts, golf, three vacations. I mean, I've watched two weeks of college football without any alcohol in my hand. I mean, that's, I can't tell you the last time I did that. It's been 20 years, you know, it's tough. It gets real, but I'm also, I have a sense of accomplishment and I, I tell myself I've come this far. Why would I just throw it away? And chances are, well, the listeners can probably figure out who my sports team is, but we're going to lose anyway. So I can either be drunk and angry or I can just be angry after we lose, you know? <laughs> so, uh, but going, going back to what you said though, on stats, I think, and we can fact check, fact check each other on this, but alcohol killed the second most people in the world besides heroin, but alcohol is legal and packaged and marketed. Isn't that a stat that I read somewhere? It's definitely up there. We're going to have Ty and Liz who do show notes and editing fact check us, but there are some pretty scary stats that nobody's talking about, but they are real. I read another one. And once again, we'll have to fact, fact check myself. It was about how the percentage of increased uh, possibility of breast cancer in women, if they are daily drinkers, like nobody's talking about that. <laughs> mm -hmm. No. Yeah. I mean, these are real. They exist. My therapist was telling me that the liver is the only organ in the body that does not have pain receptors on it but it's also the only organ in the body that can regenerate itself. So for someone to drink as much as I did, or as much as they do when they, when they have a problem, they won't know that their liver is failing because they won't be able to feel it. But I, I wonder what my liver thinks of me now after, you know, drinking hard drinking for over 20 years. And now I'm at 109 days without drinking. I wonder, <laughs> I wonder if it thinks I'm still alive. I mean, the body is amazing and I am just, so grateful that mine has been able to recover because we put it through the ringer, a lot of us, you know, and it's amazing what it can do and how it can heal. And I think we are truly the lucky ones if we've been able to stack days and then if we've been able to still be healthy today after everything that we were doing. Frank, tell me, I know that addiction does run in your family, alcoholism specifically, you said, mm -hmm. have you been able to kind of pinpoint 
why you drink? Do you think it's like genetic? Do you think it's because you were hiding from something? Have you explored that? Yeah. You know, those are some other tough conversations that I've had to have with myself over the years. And from what I can determine, I was what some would consider, or I would consider like a social drinker or a, a problem drinker, but I didn't really necessarily drink to, to have my problems go away. I, I had a problem with drinking because I was, you know, a social drinker with no off switch, but I was also um, a weekend warrior. I don't know that I was trying to escape anything. I like most listeners, I, I've made such a connection with the, the previous guests you've had on this podcast because I thought it was just me. I, I come from a pretty normal life. I had a great childhood. I had great parents, but it just kind of seemed to progress over the years. So I guess I just maybe fell in love with the sensation of what alcohol gave me. But then the, you know, the hangovers and the side effects and the aftermath, the aftermath started to outweigh that. But I never drank to to escape anything. I think it was more so to fit in or just to, it, everybody was doing it. So that's what I did. Yeah. And back to talking about the body, you know, the brain after so many repetitions, a habit becomes a dependence. You know, we are carving that path. And every time we take another drink, we're repeating it, repeating it, repeating it. And it just creates, creates these like waves and dents in our brain. And it's, it's true. You know, we've had people on the show and this is another great part of that podcast that I mentioned at the beginning of the interview. This was Rich Roll's podcast. They were talking about how you don't have to have childhood childhood trauma or a terrible relationship or you don't have to have a lot of what people think you need to have in order to have a problem with alcohol. Like you can just develop a problem with alcohol, period. You know, there doesn't have to be a reason or something that you're trying to cover or something that's trauma-based. There's all these theories, you know, they were talking about Gabor Mate talking about how, like, if you address the trauma, you address the addiction. And then we always love the other thought process who is um, Johan Hari. I think that's his name correctly, who says, you know, the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's connection. So there's also that thought process that if you have good connections, then you won't have addiction. And this doctor in particular, she was a psychiatrist. She was saying, people can just become addicted to an addictive substance. Like that, that's also another option and another way to think about it. You know, you don't have to not be connected or be traumatized. You can just become addicted to alcohol. Yeah. Alcohol doesn't discriminate. You can come from all walks of life at all ends of the spectrum. I mean, you can be homeless under a bridge. You can be, you know, a wall street executive, you know, making seven figures a year with the family and, and every, every box checked, but the side effects and the physical effects are all the same of alcohol. It doesn't care who you are, but it is super easy to get addicted to. So you did mention that you have done things that normally you used to do with drinking, like watching football or go to parties, go to events. What mm -hmm. was some of your armor when you were entering those situations again, when you we're starting to do them again. Like what were your tools? How would you protect yourself, protect your sobriety? What worked for you in terms of having your first sober experiences, first sober golf course? How did you do all of that? What helped? Uh, a lot of mental preparation because I know how easy it is to fail because I'd done it before, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of prep work mentally. And honestly, I, I did a lot of disguising too, because Nowadays, most people carry around a real fancy, you know, like metal koozie for their drink, or they have like a, an insulated, fancy, big mug, and you can't tell what's in it. So I prepare myself mentally, but at the same time, I kind of like blend it in. You know, I've done the, the mocktail where I just have the bartender pour me like, you know, a Sprite or some sparkling water and they put it in a cocktail glass with a lemon or a lime in there. So that's pretty much how I got through it. Now it's easier. It's a lot easier now. But those first couple of weeks were rough. It really was because the first thing you do when you get to the golf course is go to the clubhouse and, and buy a six pack. And, and then, you know, we're all sitting there waiting to go out onto the golf course and all you can hear is the cracking of beer cans and, you know, looking around, you see everybody just chugging as fast as they can. So I'm like, oh, well, this is fun. <laughs> but actually it, it is fun now. I actually enjoy it. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. You know, did you find the beginning 
because you're still fairly early. I mean, I'm almost three years in and I still sometimes feel like I'm early because I get cravings or things come up where I get resentful. Like, did you or have you had scenarios where you show up and you're just mad? Like you're mad because you can't drink. Did that happen at the beginning? Going like yes. crossing that bridge from being upset to, oh, I can actually have fun. I feel like that's a bridge that needs to be crossed. Yes, that bridge was pretty long over my metaphorical river, if you will. But yeah, it was, it was there and it took a couple of weeks. And then when I finally started to calm down, that's when my, my good friend and golf partner told me, um, I was a raging a-hole because <laughs> mm -hmm. he, he, he knew I was struggling and he didn't want to make it worse. So I thank him for that support. But at the same time, yeah, it's, it's a challenge. It's tough. And I would say that if I could do it differently, there might be a few things that I would tweak differently, but uh, you have to be open and you have to let people know that this is your choice. You're making a choice for yourself and your family. And this is the other thing that blew my mind. The more people I told, nobody cares. Mm -hmm. Nobody really cares. Like I thought that I was going to be judged and like, oh, rehabs for quitters and this and that, blah, 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 because I was always the life of the party and I never had an off switch. But so many people have been so supportive and I've actually had close friends that I never thought would have reached out to me, have reached out to me on the side. And they're like, dude, I'm struggling. I'm thinking about the same thing. How did you do it? What's it like? Is it hard? And that like almost brings me to tears when people call me because I'm so personal with people and I value the, the friends and the family that I have. And when people come to me and they're hurting, I know what they're going through because again, alcohol doesn't discriminate. I know what it's doing to them and it's eating them up inside, but they really, I was surprised how little people care or don't even notice that you're not drinking. We think that everyone is looking at us, but we often say on this show, you know, everyone is worried about themselves. Like we tend to just actually be thinking more about ourselves than other people. <laughs> yeah. It's just a reality. The story in your head. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And then Frank, tell me more about this support system that you've built. So you talk to your brother, you listen to the podcast. How have you woven in community and support? What does support look like for you right now? Well, now that everyone knows what I'm doing, I do have a lot of uh, friends and family that check in on me. Not like, how's it going? Or are you still sober? Or like, hey, man, hope you're doing okay. Still proud of you, you know, stuff like that. And that's really encouraging. Over the holiday weekend here, I went out to my folks who are semi-retired. They spend a lot of time in their RV going around the country and they happen to be in the area. And my mom came up to me at the campsite and she goes, you just look so much different. And I really haven't lost that much weight because I've, <laughs> I've kind of replaced alcohol with maybe some nicotine and some sugar. So I'm working on that now, but she could tell just by looking at me, I have lost a little bit of weight, but she said, you just like, you look different, you act different. And so things like that are kind of encouraging to me. So I would put that under the category of, of support. So a lot of uh, communication with, with, you know, my, my circle of influence and, and the people that I trust and I love. Do you get any cravings still, Frank? Oh yeah. Yeah. They come They're They're far and few. The, the, the biggest one I had was a couple of weeks ago when I went to see a concert and the concert was the last box to check off of the things that I hadn't done that normally would involve, you know, alcohol, lots of alcohol. Mm -hmm. And I probably saved a hundred dollars, not buying those $10 beers, which was awesome. <laughs> but the, there was a pretty, there was a pretty, pretty big craving that night. However, I was also having fun watching all the drunk people walk upside down and backwards, trying not to spill their beer, going back to their seats. I mean, it's, it's kind of hilarious. I mean, I, I was aware of it when I was that guy, but I also didn't know how much it was going on. So I'm, I'm <laughs> much more observant to my surroundings now and, and to see everyone just kind of you know, stumble and, and pound drinks. And, you know, there were, there were grown adults in the parking lot that couldn't find their cars afterwards. And there were people fighting. And then there was another couple, a couple cars over that were trying to get busy on their car. And I was just like, oh man, <laughs> this is uh this is interesting. Yeah. You get a whole different perspective. And I love what you said, you know, that going to concerts was the last thing on your list. I, I feel like it's very empowering to make a list of things that maybe even be scary to think about doing sober, but going through that list at your own comfort level and pace, but it feels so good once you do it and you know that you can do it and you know that you've done it before. 
then you can create more reps in that direction, which is the opposite direction of what we were doing in the past. So it's really great to hear that you've been doing that and creating new memories for yourself. Yeah. And, you know, oddly enough, it was one of the best concerts I've ever been to, mm. um, <laughs> probably because I remember everything and uh, it, it was amazing in itself. But I mean, it was probably the top three concert in the top three concerts I've been to in my life. And as a musician and a music lover, I've been to hundreds of shows. Yeah, it's different when you're sober, for sure. Frank, mm -hmm. how is your relationship at home, you know, with the kids, with your wife? What changes have you noticed there due to your decision? It's all positive. As you know, kids don't care if you're hungover on a Saturday morning. They still want to get out of bed. They still want to be fed. They still need, you know, might need help getting dressed. You're going to the bathroom. And, you know, I, I love waking up rested of a sound mind. I have so many more memories of the time that I'm spending with my kids now. It seems like it's soaking into my brain and staying versus like, oh my God, I'm so hungover. I just got to, you know, get them breakfast and, and get them dressed. And then maybe I can, you know, pour a Bloody Mary and watch football all day or something like that. So, so I would say the relationship with my kids is better on my side. They never really... Uh, I don't think they had a bad relationship with me, you know, on the other side, because I did all my drinking when they went to bed. They just saw me when I was hung over in the morning, but I can tell the dynamic is different with my wife. Um, she's very supportive. She still drinks herself, but she's also using this opportunity to try and be healthier herself. And she's gotten back into her workout routine and we're both eating better and exercising more. I'm not going to tell her how to live her life. Uh, she can she can control her own alcohol. And if she gets to that point, then I'll support her. But I, I don't want anybody else to change for me. I made this decision for myself and I don't expect anyone else to change. So all in all the relationships at, at home have gotten much better. Uh, that makes me really happy to hear. And mm -hmm. Frank, we have reached the rapid fire round. So if you can answer these questions in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Are you ready? I am ready. If you could talk to Frank on day one or younger Frank, what would you say? I'd go back to most, if not all people don't care that I drink or not. I mean, the people that do judge our relationship on alcohol, I probably need to reevaluate our friendship or our relationship, but people really don't care if you drink or not. What's your favorite ice cream flavor, Frank? Ooh, right now it's a Girl Scout mint chocolate chip cookie. What has recovery made possible for you? It's given me back moments with my family, my friends. Um, I'm, I have more clarity. Um, I'm better interactions with people. I think, I think I'm a better person. Um, I'm still working on some things, but um, <laughs> physically and mentally, I can definitely tell a difference. What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze? You're not missing out on anything. I have huge FOMO and sometimes, you know, I'll wake up at two, three in the morning thinking I'm missing out on something, which I'm not. So I'll yell at myself and go back to sleep, but you're not missing anything. You're not missing the party. People don't care if you drink or not. And the hours of productivity and the money saved, it's going to be mind blowing. You get it all back. And I mean, we all experience the same results from booze. Alcohol doesn't discriminate. So it's, it's up to you to make the decision. And before we depart, can you give listeners your own, you may have to say adios to booze if line. Sure. Um, you may have to say adios to booze if alcohol is the first thing on your list of anything that you're going to be doing, whether it's, you know, going to the golf course or to a concert or you're doing a road trip or you're going out to eat and you're trying to plan which restaurant or which gas station you're going to stop at and pregame or where you're going to get drunk before you're going. So if alcohol is at the top of your list, you might need to ditch the booze. Great answer. Thank you so much, Frank. I can't wait to air this so that everybody can listen in on your story. Thank you for sharing. I appreciate you. And thanks for listening. No, I thank you, Adette. I've been, I've been opened up to a whole new world with these podcasts and I look forward to all the future ones. And I hope that I hope this story or my episode rather inspires somebody else to maybe, you know, think about what they're doing or maybe look at a change and because uh, that's what it did for me. And that's why I'm here now. Thank you so much. You are definitely paying it forward. You know, there's always there's always someone out there who needs to hear what we have to say. So thank you so much, Frank. We'll be in touch. All right. Thanks, Adette. Take care. Bye. Very well, Timari. 
That wraps up our interview for today. And before I say adios, I want to just remind you that you are doing this, that you are living life. You know, I was watching this show on Netflix. It's called The Chair, and it has nothing to do with sobriety. (laughs) But um, there's a scene where there's this family at a kid's party, and there's a table at the party with all of the grandparents and uncles and family members of the birthday girl who's turning one, and they're having shots at the table. And someone joins them at the table, and they get offered a shot. But instead of it being called a shot, the grandparent who offers this shot to another family member says, would you like some earmuffs? And the person that's receiving this invitation kind of shrugs and is like, what do you mean earmuffs? And he says, you take this shot and all of this background noise of all of these kids yelling just goes away. What noise? What kids? You know, and it was very interesting to me because in a way, It's true, right? And we say this a lot. It works until it doesn't. Alcohol has a way of dimming everything around us. Not only the good things, but also the things that we want to dim out. We want to dim out annoyances, um, loud kids yelling in the background, colleagues that maybe seem annoying to us. There are things we actually want to dim out. The thing is, I think that in staying and in being present when things are uncomfortable for us, that's where a real opportunity of growth arrives. And that's where we grow our tolerance and our threshold for being uncomfortable, which I think adds a lot of value to our life. So I just wanted to take a moment to remind you that you are doing a very hard thing, which is staying. Remember that you're not alone and together is always better. Recovery elevator, you took the elevator down, you got to take the stairs back up. You can do this. I love you guys. Get out of the story. Get out of the story and use the mind to locate the body. Move the energy inside by talking, walking, and most importantly, trusting that the body already knows how to do so. Fight a drinking problem or an addiction because it's trying to tell us something and we must listen. It's nudging us in a certain direction. Listen to the heart and follow your gut intuition. This will never mislead you. People often ask me, what's the one thing I can do? response is always the same. Burn the ships. It's these repetitive thoughts that always drive you to make the same decisions. It's these familiar decisions that always lead to the same actions. It's these familiar actions that always result in the same outcomes. It's these same outcomes that constantly result in the same emotions. It's these familiar emotions that give you those familiar feelings. These feelings that always lead to the same thoughts, thereby completing the cycle. If you can recognize this, you will be empowered to change your thinking.